With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy, history, and the community to listen, learn, and take action. Now, if you have logged in as a guest and wish to participate in the chat, you can sign in through your Facebook account or Blog Talk Radio. I will also open the lines in the second half of the show so that you can ask questions or make a comment. Now, following this show, you can continue this discussion on the Genealogy and History Forum of Afrogenius.com and on my Facebook page, Research at the National Archives and Beyond. In fact, like my page. Well, tonight's broadcast will focus on a chronology of blacks in the Civil War with Benny J. McRae, a military history researcher. Well, for the past 20 years, Three years, Benny has focused his research on the African American military experience. He owns and manages a number of websites, including Lest We Forget, Making of the United States of America, African American Military History, and Resting Places of the United States Colored Civil War Soldiers and Sailors. He is the co-author of 19th Century Freedom Fighters, centered on Lieutenant Colonel Charles Charles Tyler Trowbridge, commander of the South Carolina's 33rd Regiment, United States Colored Infantry. The book was published in January 2007. Benny J. McRae is committed to supporting educational programs that include the history of the U.S. Colored Troops, in collaboration with Paul LaRue, history instructor of Washington Senior High School, Washington Courthouse, Ohio, he is proud of the school's website maintained by its students 
Freedom Fighters, United States Colored Troops in the Civil War. So let me give a warm welcome to Mr. Benny J. McRae, Jr., to research at the National Archives and beyond. Welcome, Benny. Thanks, uh, Ms. Bennett, for inviting me tonight to participate in a discussion in remembrance of the nearly 4 million enslaved people uh, in the United States, uh, their supporters in the U.S., and those who came from foreign countries. Also, let us also remember their suffering sacrifices before and during the transition period from slavery to freedom. Thank you again. You're so welcome. And it's something I'm really glad that you said what you just said, because so many of us perhaps haven't even paid as much attention as we could to the suffering that many people went through during the Civil War and prior to the Civil War. So before we begin the discussion on the chronology of uh, people of African descent in America's Civil War, let's first talk about you. How did you get involved in studying the role played by individuals of African descent in the American Civil War? Well, that's a very long story. Uh, I think I can condense it down into about a minute, hopefully. I uh, first got started, uh, one of the first things that motivated me was when I was in high school at Knox Academy, Selma, Alabama. I had a history teacher, Mr. John Shields. On any given day, he would uh, close the textbook and he would talk about uh, black history. At the time, it was called Negro history or colored history. And uh, he talked about the Civil War, especially in Selma, when the Yankees would come in, came in and destroy Selma. And uh, by the way, that uh, school was located on Jeff Davis Avenue. And uh, I went off to college, and uh, I had that uh, had a couple of history courses, but I never mentioned anything about uh, uh, the blacks uh, in American history, except maybe about slavery. And so I went in the military, and uh, I read every book that I could find on World War II because I was fascinated with World War II. And uh, I'd never found anything regarding uh, black participation, hardly anything uh, regarding black participation, except maybe a passing uh, item about Dory Miller, as you remember, and uh, he uh, at Pearl Harbor. And mm-hmm. also they would uh, talk about, uh, there were some things at times, they would mention the Tuskegee, well, they weren't called the Tuskegee Airmen, they were called the Negro Pilots. But very little... Uh, that uh, And I read a lot of books uh, about the generals and admirals and so forth in World War II. And so when I came back, uh, when I got out of the service, I took a couple, I went a couple of quarters at uh, Alabama State. And I had a professor there, his name was Professor Brown. He uh, would sit at his desk and lecture to the class about uh, black history and uh, he would talk about his his uh, area was uh, Reconstruction. And I remember that very vividly, some of the uh, 
lectures that he gave, and uh, this was outside of the textbook, by the way. And so I started my career, and uh, after about 30-some years, 30-plus, about 35 years, when I retired, I went out to uh, visit the Boot Hill Museum, Dodge City, Kansas. It was in the low season in October, and I had a long discussion with the lady who was a docent there, and... uh, she talked about how the history of this country had been really messed up, and she blamed it on the historians and the Hollywood movie producers. And she said a lot. Our discussion lasted well over an hour. And so when I mentioned to her the fact that I was pretty disappointed to hear all of that, and because I was starting out to try to find information about my family and my people, And she told me that uh, if you want to know anything about the history of your people, you're going to have to research it yourself. You will not be able to find it in a textbook, and and there are very few books, uh, you know, related to uh, history. So that kind of set me off, and from that point on, uh, I went on a mission, and that's been over 20 years ago. And, of course, I'm still on that mission. I consider myself a researcher and a student of uh, Civil War history. When I started out, I, I wanted to cover the all the American wars from uh, 18, uh, from the Revolutionary War all the way up, but it was too overwhelming. So I saw on the Civil War and World War II. And my big focus has been lately has been the uh, Civil War since the sesquicentennial. Sesquicentennial started. Well, we really feel privileged that you have chosen to share your knowledge and your research with us tonight. So help us understand, if we're going to study the Civil War, I mean, just where should we begin when you say study our people? What's the beginning part of this? Well, let me uh, let me go back uh, briefly to uh, 1820. Uh, the uh, Missouri Compromise of 1820, and uh, I'm going to fast forward uh, from there to 1850, but I think to put things in perspective, we need to know what happened back in those early years and how it affected the slave, uh, our people, those enslaved, and also the uh, uh, different policy changes that took place in this country. In 1820, there was an effort by the Senate and the House of Representatives to maintain a balance of power between the slaveholding states and the free states. And, of course, the uh, slaveholding states... Uh, feared that they would become outnumbered in congressional representation and they would lack the power to present their interests in property and trade. And at the time, uh, James Monroe was the president. So uh, this uh, compromise was uh, uh, one to maintain an even keel between the slave, uh, slave states and the free states. However, and uh, let's fast forward to 1850, uh, 
California drafted a constitution, elected senators and congressmen, and proclaimed itself a state. And they call it Tennessee style. Uh, Tennessee started this early in the earlier years. And of course, they kind of California kind of forced their way into the union. And it was later approved by Congress, and they were admitted as a free state, which is what is known as Compromise of 1850. This highly upset the. Uh, the slave states, uh, they were outnumbered. Uh, and, uh, and, of course, one of the bills that uh, came out of this compromise was the uh, 1850 Fugitive Slave Act. It was the most con- controversial. It required citizens to assist in the recovery of fugitive uh, slaves. The... Uh, uh situation uh the the uh act uh mandated the states to which engage in slaves uh which uh and which escaped slaves fled were was obligated to return them to their owners upon their discovery and subjected people who helped runaway slaves to uh criminal sanctions. And of course, it was enacted by. There was another, uh, a previous act that was enacted in 1793. But as the northern states abolished slavery, the act was rarely enforced. And the southern states, they bitterly resented the northern attitude towards slavery, slavery, which was uh, demonstrated by the existence of the Underground Railroad and arrangements by which abolitionists helped runaway slaves obtain freedom. And, of course, this act was uh, uh, was passed in order to appease the South, the South or the slave states. And it imposed a duty on all citizens to assist federal marshals to enforce the law or be prosecuted. The act also required that when a slave was captured, he or she was to to be brought before a federal court of commission. But the slave would not be tried by jury, nor would his or her testimony be given much weight. And, of course, the statement of the slave alleged owners was main evidence, and the alleged owner was not even required to appear in court. The uh, northern reaction against this act was very strong. And, of course, uh, some states uh, enacted laws that nullified its effect, making it worthless. And uh, persons uh, convicted of violating the act was often heavy-handed, heavily fined and imprisoned of both. And, of course, the uh, refusal of northern states to enforce the slave act was uh, alleged by South Carolina as one reason for the succession uh, from the Union. The uh, this act uh, for slaves attempting to live uh, north in the north, uh, the ones who escaped in the South, uh, I mean, escaped from the South prior to this act, they were devastated. Uh, and of course, many left their homes and fled to Canada. They was many was living comfortable in the north. They fled their homes and went to Canada. 
And then uh, during the next 10 years, an estimated 20,000 blacks moved to neighboring countries. And, of course, there were the case of Harriet Jacobs, a fugitive living in uh, New York. And uh, she uh, stayed put. She didn't She didn't go anywhere. And there were others, uh, for instance, a gentleman named Anthony Burns. He was a fugitive living in Boston, was one of the many who was captured and returned to slavery. And there were free blacks, too who was captured and sent to the South. With no legal right to plead their cases, they were completely defenseless. And the uh, Fugitive Slave Act, uh, it accomplished what it was set out to do. It kept the nation united, but the solution was only temporary. Over the following decade, the country's citizens became further divided over the issue of slavery. And the rift would continue to grow until the nation itself was divided. Some of the key points that happened from 1850, between 1850 and 1860, was the fact that the individuals, as I mentioned earlier, who had previously escaped to the North had to flee to Canada. In uh, 1856, I I bring this up because I think it's, it's, uh, it uh, highlights the suffering that took place amongst people who were yearning for freedom and tried to get their freedom. And that's the Margaret Garner incident in Cincinnati, Ohio, in 1856, where Margaret uh, killed her own daughter rather than see her go back in slavery. And when she when she knew that she was about to be captured, she would have killed other some of her other children if she had been able to get to them. A very tragic story. And then we had the uh, Dred Scott decision by the Supreme Court in March of 1857, and I'm sure most people are familiar with the Dred Scott decision. And then in 1859 was the Harper's Ferry raid with uh, John John Brown, and of course uh, he was uh, captured. Many of his men were killed, and of course he uh, was hanged for the deed. And of course that uh, these incidents uh, brought on a lot of fear amongst the in the South uh, over slavery and the the union itself and of course uh it uh i think it uh, kind of promoted the idea that uh, uh pretty soon the nation was going to be completely divided and this brings us to the uh, campaign the presidential campaign of 1860 with uh Abraham Lincoln the Republican Stephen Douglas the Northern Democrat John C. Beck Breckinridge was a Southern Democrat, and uh, John Bell was a Constitutional Union, and of course Abraham Lincoln, he won with uh, 40% of the vote, and uh, and he was elected president on November the 6th, 1860. Later on, uh, a little over a month later. 
South Carolina became the first southern state to uh, succeed from the Union. And a convention in February of the next year, the convention of the succeeded, succeeded states, uh, Alabama, uh, Mississippi, South Carolina, Florida, Georgia, Louisiana. They met in uh, Montgomery, Alabama, and adopted a provision of the Constitution of Confederate States of America and elected Jefferson Davis provision of president. And... Uh, and of course, late on in March, uh, the uh, Congress provision of Congress admitted Texas to the Confederacy. The uh, at this time, uh, there were during this particular period, there were slaves escaping and uh, trying to gain their freedom. A lot of them went to uh, Union Army posts within the uh, in the South in hopes of. Uh, gaining their freedom, the federal government, they're thinking the federal government would protect them and give them freedom, and that didn't happen. Uh, one of the recorded, uh, few recorded incidents we have, we have is at Fort Pickens, Florida, on March the 18th, 1861, uh, an officer there wrote a letter to his superiors stating that on the uh, morning of the 12th, uh, four Negro runaways came to the fort entertaining the idea that we were placed here to protect them and grant them their freedom. He said, I did what I could to teach them to the contrary. In the afternoon, I took them to Pensacola, delivered them to the city marshal to be returned to their owners. That same night, four more made their appearance. They were also turned over to the authorities the next morning. This was before the uh, uh, attack on Fort Sumter, which happened on April the 12th in 1861. After that incident, uh, President Lincoln issued a proclamation calling for troops to put down the rebellion. He also issued a call for 75,000 volunteers. Across the north, a lot of blacks went to the recruiting station to volunteer their service to the Union to uh, try to bring the Union back together, and they were refused. They were told that they weren't needed, and uh, some comments were made to them that this was a white man's war, and they would be able to uh, win it themselves, fight it and win it themselves. And then on uh, May the 24th, uh, Major General Benjamin Butler, who had just arrived at Fort Monroe, Virginia, he did something that had a, uh, the greatest impact of, uh, on, on, uh, of that time. And uh, it, I think the impact is still it can still should still be felt because uh, of what the, the action that he had taken. Uh, I at one time used to consider him a, a abolitionist general, but I'm not so sure whether he was abolitionist or not. But he had the foresight 
I think he was a little bit smarter than some of those other generals and some of those other officers. He had the foresight to see what was going on. And uh, he, uh, uh, there was a few of the slaves came to uh, to him and he put them to work and he declared them to be contrabands of war. The first three was uh, Frank Baker, Shepard Mallory, and James Townsend. And uh, they were field hands, and like hundreds of other local slaves, they had been pressed in the service by the Confederates, compelled to build artillery, artillery replacements uh, and across the harbor. And, of course, they labored uh, uh, beneath the uh, banner, uh, kind of ironic, of the 115th Virginia Militia, the blue flag bearing the motto, motto in golden letters, give me liberty or give me death. And uh, this uh, set off uh, a sort of a had sort of a ripple effect, but it took some time for this uh, action by General Butler to really uh, take uh, take hold. Because uh, uh, even though his his position, he was uh, supported by Secretary of War Cameron, uh, Simon Cameron. The uh, there were others in the War Department and Lincoln. Uh, uh, administration, they didn't know what to do with this. They didn't know how to handle this situation. And uh, later on, uh, they, uh, in, in August of 1861, uh, Congress passed the first Confiscation Act. It was passed on August 6th. It authorized the Union seizure of rebel property. And it stated that all slaves who fought with or worked for the Confederate military service were free of further obligations to their masters. Invoking uh, martial law, General John C. Fremont uh, uh, free, declared free the slaves of this oral owners, uh, owners in Missouri. And, of course, President Lincoln asked that he modify his order so as not to exceed congressional laws respecting emancipation. And uh, he refused, and he was subsequently relieved of uh, duty. In um, December of 1861, uh, uh, trying to give give you an idea of uh, the policy or lack of policy of the of the uh, uh of the administration at that time uh in december secretary of war simon cameron issued uh, his annual report from uh which uh, president lincoln had required the deletion of passages advocating emancipation and the employment of former slaves as military laborers and soldiers he re, uh, he refused to delete that, and of course he was soon replaced by Edwin M. Uh, Stanton. Later on, in, in '62, the next year in '62, Congress adopted uh, additional articles of war forbidding members of the Army and Navy to return fugitive slaves uh, to their owner. In April. 
General Major General David Hunter, a, un, a Union commander in South Carolina on the Sea Islands, requested permission to arm black men for the military. He received no response. And, of course, he went out and began recruiting on his own in early May. But the War Department refused to pay or equip the the regiment, and Hunter is therefore compelled to disband it. And uh, General Hunter also declared free all slaves in South Carolina, Georgia, and Florida. And, of course, uh, Mr. Lincoln issued a proclamation nullifying General Hunter's emancipation edict and urged the border states, uh, Kentucky, Maryland, and Delaware, to embrace gradual compensated uh, emancipation. And uh, President Lincoln... uh, 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 well, Congress pro- prohibited slavery in the uh, in the territories, which also upset the uh, the slave states. And President Lincoln, in July, issued an appeal to congressmen uh, to the border states to support gradual compensated emancipation. And he talked about colonization of free slaves outside of the United States, warning that it if they do not act soon, slavery in their states will be extinguished by more mere friction and abrasion by the mere incident of the war. Two days later, a majority of the congressmen rejected Lincoln's appeal. July the 17th was the passage of the Second Confiscation Act. It uh, passed, uh, was virtual, an emancipation proclamation. It said that slaves or civilian and military Confederate officials shall be forever free, but it was only enforceable in areas in the South occupied by the Union Army. And, of course, uh, Lincoln was again concerned about the effect of uh, anti-slavery measure on the border states and again urging these states to begin uh, compensated, gradual compensated emancipation. Then uh, on the same date, the Militia Act was passed, provided for the employment of persons of African descent in any military or naval service of which they may be found competent, granting freedom to slaves so employed and to families if they belong to disloyal owners. And uh, President Lincoln, uh, he could have at that point begun a, uh, procedures for enlisting blacks in the army, but he waited uh, for some reason for a proclamation freeing the slaves in the rebel states, but agreed to postpone it until after a suitable military victory. And of course, that victory came uh, with the uh, after the Battle of Antietam. Uh, General. And uh, Senator Jim Lane, uh, let me let me go go back and uh, mention the fact. Now we are talking about the army uh, recruiting blacks to serve in the army. Let's go back and talk about the others, civilian or contrabands, and uh, navy. Uh, the navy began uh, had blacks on their ships at the beginning, of, uh, free blacks on their ships as at the beginning of the uh, Civil War. 
I've been told by uh, a naval, a navy, a Civil War Navy researcher, and uh, they began to recruit uh, slaves, uh, ex-slaves, in September of 1861 without any fanfare. There wasn't any problem or any kind of uh, uh, anything that prevented this. They went and did it, and it happened. So when we are talking about the Army, they came, it, it, uh, recruitment and the problem with the Army came much later, and there was much opposition to this. Uh, and, of course, it gradually began to get in place because of people like uh, uh, Jim Lane, General Jim Lane. He began to recruit uh, an organized black regiment. Uh, he began to recruit an organizing of a black regiment regiment at Fort Scott, Kansas. Brigadier General J.W. Uh, Phelps in New Orleans attempted to organize black units but ran into opposition of all people from Major General Benjamin Butler due to no authority from the War Department. And of course, uh, uh, General Phelps uh, uh, made mention of the fact that uh, they wanted him to be a slave driver, and so he uh, he didn't uh, he wanted to organize some uh, the soldiers, and uh, he had orders to get civilians to cut down a bunch of trees in New Orleans, and he told them he didn't want to be no he wasn't going to be no slave driver driver, so he resigned his commission, uh, and then after having withheld. Uh, uh, the uh, uh, permission uh, uh, for months, the War Department authorized the recruitment of black soldiers in South Carolina. And, of course, uh, the uh, preliminary uh, Emancipation Proclamation was issued by Lincoln, President Lincoln, in September of uh, 1862. And, of course, it announced that all slaves in those states, a portion of states still in rebellion as of January the 1st, will be declared free. And, of course, uh, he pledged monetary aid for the slave states and so forth. Shortly after that, on the 22nd, and uh can't explain, uh, I've been trying to research uh, why that happened, but uh, uh, just where the authorization came for uh, how it came. But anyway, General Butler, who uh, had an argument with General Phelps, caused Phelps to resign. He mustered into uh, the Union Army, the 1st Louisiana Native Guard Regiment, on uh, September 22, 1862. It was redesignated as the 1st Corps d'Afrique and subsequently the 73rd United States Colored Infantry. In October, he mustered in the uh, 2nd Regiment, Louisiana Native Guard, and uh, it was redesignated the 2nd Corps d'Afrique and subsequently the 74th United States Colored Infantry Regiment. And, of course, the first engagement by a black unit took place uh, against the Confederate forces at Island Mounds in Bates County, Missouri, as the 1st Kansas Colored Infantry on October the 28th. 
1862, and uh, it was uh, it was a win for the uh, First Kansas Colored uh, Infantry. They uh, stood uh, drove off the uh, Confederates, and a local historian out in Bates County had told me that they uh, captured 150 head of horses and cattle and drove them back to uh, Kansas. These were Confederate uh, uh, properties. This was once Confederate property. In November of uh, 1862, uh, there were two expeditions by the First South Carolina uh, Company under the command of Charles Tyler, Captain Charles Tyler, Trowbridge were attached to the 48th New York Infantry, and Lieutenant Colonel Oliver T. Beard was the commander, and uh, they went up uh, on an expedition up the Jolly River, St. Mary's, Kings Bay, uh, Georgia, Butler Island, Sapio Island, Sapio River, and other locations, and they, uh, on uh, between 13th and 18th of November, they went uh, with the same regiment up to the up the Doughboy River, where they confis- destroyed Confederate property, confiscated thousands of dollars of uh, equipment, and freed the slaves. And in their report, they stated that once they freed the slaves, they gave them a musket and told them to go and help free other people. And that's what they were in the building process of that uh, regiment, which uh, ended up, it wasn't mustered into the Union Army until January 1863. And on the 24th of November, the 3rd Regiment, Louisiana uh, Native Guards, were mustered into the Union Army, and it was redesignated the 3rd Corps de Afrique. And subsequently, the uh, 75th Colored uh, Infantry Regiment. Shortly after that, the 1st Regiment of Heavy Artillery African Descent was also organized in New Orleans. And uh, it changed, uh, it was changed to the 1st Corps de Afrique, and, uh, and, uh, it, uh, and then to the 10th U.S. Colored Heavy Artillery. In December, Confederate President uh, it, uh, Davis issued a proclamation ordering that black unit soldiers and their office, officers captured by the Confederate troops are not to be treated as prisoners of war. Instead, instead they are to be remanded to federal to Confederate state authorities. And of course, this now brings us to. Uh, January of uh, 1863 and the uh, Emancipation Proclamation. The uh, I want I like to state over the years I have discussed uh, this with a number of individuals and uh, uh, researchers and historians have discussed the emancipation. Some state that it wasn't worth the paper it was written on because <laughs> oh. it only it, it only applied to the states that were in rebellion, mm-hmm. and it was like issuing a executive order to a foreign country, which, uh, in fact, is true, I guess, in, in certain respects. However, 
there's one uh, paragraph in that emancipation that was more powerful than all. And when he stated, I further declare and make known that such persons of suitable conditions will be received into the armed services of the United States to garrison forts, positions, stations, and other places, and to man vessels of all sorts in said service. And, of course, that opened the floodgates for slaves either escaping or the ones that were freed by the Union Army. And uh, after that, uh, uh, in the spring of uh, early 1863, thousands of slaves uh, became free, either by escaping or being freed by the Union Army. And uh, that uh, set the stage for, I guess, what we call the Freedom Year of 1863, when all-out recruiting took place. Uh, and... Uh, and of course, uh, they they began to muster in units uh, uh, all across. Uh, well, mostly in the South. We have to keep in uh, keep in mind too that uh, in the early years of this uh, effort, most of the activity, in fact, almost all of the activity, took place in the South, especially in that Mississippi Valley, uh, and. Uh, and eight in the spring of uh, eighteen. If you need a break, you can cut me off. Okay, we we are going to take a quick break because I okay. think that we're going to just take it, let you rest a few minutes, so that everyone else can get ready to start asking those questions. Yep. Quick break. <laughs> Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you have been listening to Mr. Benny J. McRae, Jr., and he has given us an excellent history lesson. I mean, he has really set the stage for what we need to know and understand about the chronology of blacks' involvement in the Civil War. Now, there's some questions coming out of the chat, and one of them is, have any documents surfaced describing the consolidation of units like the Corps d'Afrique and the African Descent and turning them into the U.S. color troops? That's one question, uh, Mr. McRae. And then the other question is, are there any records showing how the enlisted men felt about the consolidation? Uh, 
Yes, that was a lot of, uh, well, it was actually uh, redesignation, I would call. And then there were consolidations and there were some units uh, terminated, especially in Louisiana. And uh, the, uh, is, I was getting ready to go into uh, the spring of 1863 when oh. uh, Adjutant General Lorenzo Thomas, he traveled to the Mississippi Valley to oversee the recruitment and organization of black regiments. And, of course, he had other assignments. And the uh, first regiment that he organized was the 1st Arkansas and of uh, African descent. It was later redesignated the 46th U.S. Colored Infantry. And uh, other regiments were the 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, 13th Louisiana Reg, uh, 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 regiments, uh, infantry regiments, and the first and third uh, Mississippi. At the same time, uh, General Banks in uh, southern Louisiana were organizing these units called Corps de Afrique. And uh, when they, uh, the uh, the first, second, and third Louisiana Native Guards, they were redesignated as first, second, and third Corps de Afrique. And uh, subsequent regiments were given numerical designations. And uh, all of these uh, regiments, including one thing that uh, uh, is kind of is not known too often, is that there were only five engineer regiments, uh, black five uh, black engineer regiments in the Union Army, and they all were organized in that New Orleans area. And they were given all. Uh, uh, designation as first, second, third, fourth, and fifth uh, Corps de Afrique engineers. All of these units were eventually redesignated as uh, U.S. colored troops. In fact, uh, uh, as we go into the later history uh, of the recruitment, uh, the uh, all of those uh, black units were re- given U.S. colored uh, infantry or cavalry. Uh, heavy artillery designations except the uh, 54th, 55th, and the uh, 5th Massachusetts Cavalry and the 29th Connecticut. They maintained that designation throughout the war. And uh, some of these units uh, uh, served uh, until 1864 as uh, with a state designation, like the 1st Kansas Colored, the 1st Mississippi Cavalry, and so forth. And I think the question was, uh, how did the men feel? I don't have, uh, I haven't done any research on uh, on that aspect of it, because uh, there were some uh, changes, as I stated, changes in uh, 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 redesignation of the uh, regiments, and also uh, in Louisiana, and even in Alabama and uh, Mississippi, uh, there were um, uh, consolidations. Uh, some regiments were uh, consolidated and some were terminated. Uh, take, for instance, uh, the, uh, Kansas, the first Kansas Colored became the 79th uh, U.S. Colored Infantry Regiment, where the 79th was originally given to a regiment in Louisiana, as well as the second Kansas colored redesignated the 83rd. It was uh, originally had been 
a regiment in Louisiana, which was uh, terminated, and of course the uh, designation was given to those two uh, Kansas regiments. And there were others that happened somewhat similar. So I hope I answered that question. Okay. Okay, well, continue on. I mean, this is so fascinating. And if anyone would like to call in and ask a question or make a comment, please call 646-200-0491 and press 1 to speak to the host. Uh, Mr. McRae would love to hear from you. Okay, uh, moving on, uh, in May of uh, 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 1863, the... uh, Bureau of Colored uh, Troops was created by the War Department. And uh, the first unit that were that was uh, recruited and organized was the first U.S. Colored Infantry out of Washington, D.C. And one of the provisions of that, that all of the uh, uh, regiments uh, with the state designation, the Corps de Afrique designation, would... Uh, be uh, changed to uh, uh, the appropriate uh, U.S. colored infantry or U.S. colored cavalry or whatever uh, U.S. colored heavy artillery. By the way, uh, there was all, there was only one regiment of uh, light artillery. It was organized in Memphis, but they had nine batteries that were organized in various other locations. Uh, when you're speaking of getting into genealogy, I might add that. Uh, it's uh, some very interesting and fascinating history on where these men came from and how did they get to a certain lo- a certain place uh, in a certain unit. Keep in mind, a lot of them travel great distances. And one of the most fascinating things has to do with that state line between uh, uh, Mississippi and Louisiana. You had slaves escaping uh Mississippi going into Louisiana, joining, uh, enlisting, and and you vice versa. You had uh, uh, ex, uh, ex-slaves going into Mississippi. For instance, uh, two batteries of uh, light artillery were organized in uh, Mississippi, but they were given Louisiana designations. And I'm not exactly sure why this happened, whether all the men came from Louisiana or just why that designation was given. And also there was a battery that was organized in uh, in Arkansas with the Louisiana designation. So it's uh, kind of a, uh, uh, when you, when uh, those who are doing research on their family history, uh, I think uh, you have to take that in consideration. And I, I'm talking just about one, uh, about one area, and that happened a great deal, too, uh, in uh, like in Florida. Uh, you had uh, men coming out of Georgia, Florida, and into South Carolina to uh, join, uh, you know, the Union Army. And the same happened even in North Carolina. There were two regiments out of North Carolina that were mustered in and uh, trained at, uh, at uh, in Virginia at Portsmouth and Norfolk. So it was. Uh, uh, it's uh, done your research uh, for, on your genealogy research. Uh, you have to take a look at uh, at where that these uh, men are uh, originate from. 
a lot of them came and enlisted in areas. Uh, they had once been uh, contraband working for the Union Army, and they subsequently enlisted. And but it's it's a very difficult thing to. Uh, I've been working on this for many years, and it's really a fascinating sub subject. But I still haven't gotten a complete picture of how all of this took place, but it did. And uh, moving on, uh, uh, the uh, give you some activity of some of these uh, soldiers, uh, some of these units. Uh, they played a, a important role at, in the assault at uh, Port Gibson. Well, correction, Port Hudson, Louisiana. That was the first and third Louisiana Native Guards that fought at Port Hudson during the siege of Vicksburg. Also, uh, the units that I mentioned just before uh, uh, that uh, uh, General Lorenzo Thomas organized, they fought at uh, Milliken's Bend, Goodrich Landing, Mound Plantation in Louisiana, and they were also part of the uh, siege, uh, which was also uh, part of the siege of Vicksburg. And uh, the uh, Confederates surrendered at uh, Vicksburg on uh, July the 4th, uh, 1863. And, of course, uh, that gave the Union complete control of the Mississippi River once that happened. There were, the, the, I might add, the uh, black soldiers involved were small compared to the total uh, number, but at least they were there, and they fought, and they died, and they suffered especially at the Battle of Milliken's Bend, which was uh, fought mostly by recruits. And uh, one uh, historian stated that uh, it was uh, uh, fought with bayonets and, and rifle butts because a lot of the men hadn't even been taught how to uh, load and fire their, their, their weapons. And, of course, we had Elk Creek on uh, July the 17th near, near, well, the Confederates called it, uh, at Battle of the uh, Elk Creek, and the Union called it Honey Springs. That was out in Indian Territory with the first Kansas colored. And that was a pivotal battle then because the Confederates was trying to get uh, control of the Texas Road, I believe, into Fort Gibson. And that unit played... Uh, a great role in, uh, in, in this. And, of course, uh, uh, President Lincoln began to come around, and he pledged on the 30th of uh, July that Union soldiers, black or white, are entitled to equal protection if captured by the enemy and threatened retaliation for con Confederate enslavement of black prisoners of war. And uh, then on October the 13th, the October the 3rd, the War Department ordered a full-scale recruitment of black soldiers in Maryland, Missouri, and Tennessee with uh, compensation for, to lawyer owners. And uh, the uh, some some other tidbits that you might be interested in um, in '64, the Arkansas State Constitution, which. Uh, uh, abolished slavery, it was ratified by pro-Union voters. And, uh, and of course, in April, they uh, uh, 
the Senate uh, the, the Senate approved a constitution amendment uh, abolishing slavery. Uh, by the way, uh, that fugitive slave law that uh, talked about earlier, mm-hmm. it was not right, it was not uh, uh, nullified until 1864. I don't know why it took so long to uh, to get that change, but but it did. And uh, in June uh, of 1864, uh, enlistment in Kentucky was opened up to slave men, irrespective of their owner's cons- consent. And of course, compensation was paid to lawyer uh, owners. The uh, the interesting thing uh, about uh, uh, the fact that uh, the the number of soldiers, the greatest number, came from the uh, states that uh, from the slave states. And I have some numbers here if we have if I have time to. Uh, go over these a little later on. Okay. And uh and I wanted to mention too that uh, the uh those troops were involved in some I mentioned the siege of uh, Vicksburg. Uh they were involved in some other major campaigns. Uh the uh for instance the first and second South Carolina early on they captured Jacksonville, Florida. And of course, they were pulled back and replaced by white soldiers after a short time. And uh, and the excuse was that General Hunter needed them for his campaign in South Carolina. But that's uh, something that you never hear too much about: the fact that uh, these two black units uh, captured the city of Jacksonville early in the uh, in the spring of uh, 1863. Uh, the uh, uh, in December of uh, 1864, uh, the uh, general orders were general orders were issued establishing the 25th U.S. Army Corps. It was uh, the only the first and only Army Corps in the history of the country made up entirely of uh, black infantry regiments. Uh, it was about 30 or 32 infantry regiments that was organized in Virginia. And prior to that, most of those black regiments had served in the 10th Army Corps and the 25th Army Corps. And uh, they organized the 25th and they put them all in the 25th. The reason I mentioned the 25th because uh, units in that, uh, in that uh, uh, corps had participated in the siege of uh, Phillipsburg and Richmond, and they had their presence at Appomattox during the surrender. And uh, there were a number of units uh, from that corps at uh, at Appomattox uh, during the surrender. And after the war was over, they were sent to uh, Texas. Uh, the uh, now we do have a question coming out of the chat. Okay. And uh, were there any uh, free people of color in the South that joined the USCT? Uh, yes, I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure there were. I don't have any doc, any records of any, but uh, I'm sure they were. Yeah, there were free people of color. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. that uh, that joined the USCT. If you have time, I'd like to talk about the use, the uh, forced use of uh, slaves and free people of color on the other side in the Confederacy. Yes, we do have the time, and that would okay. be interesting to hear you share that information with us. Well, uh, I, want, I have some other things I want to talk about the Union, but I think this is very important because of the revisionists and the and all the other stuff that has been coming out for years about black Confederates. Uh, yes. By the way, that term black Confederate didn't even exist during the Civil War. It's a modern-day term somebody made up. I'm not sure where it came from, but there was no such thing as a black Confederate in the Civil War, and there were no black soldiers on the, uh, that fought for the Confederacy in the in the Civil War. And uh, that... Uh, position is well documented. Uh, the uh, there were two types of in the, uh, groups that uh, that served the Confederacy and they well they were forced to serve. There were body servants who went off the war with their owners. They provided uh, for his personal needs and whatever uh, assisted him if he was wounded or whatever needed be done to protect them. A lot of them were loyal to their owners. Some were not, and they escaped and went to the Union Army. The other group were, uh, the Confederacy had an Impressment Act where they would impress uh, slaves with the consent of the owners, and uh, there were thousands of them uh, that they uh, that uh, they brought in and support functions throughout the war. And they provided uh, labor. They were laborers, teamsters, uh, other other functions. The, uh, they were placed under the engineer department of the Confederate, various Confederate units, and they were used to, in uh, these support functions, they were not soldiers. And... Uh, they were uh their owners were compensated. There were free people of color that were also impressed. They were paid. The uh, Confederate uh, Army paid them or either their agent. Uh, a lot of people don't realize I ran across some documents a few years ago that some of the free people of the South were in some states were required to have agents. And of course the agents were paid. So I just want to clear up people who have, who have this doubt, uh, uh, th- have this thinking about uh, uh, blacks uh, fighting for the Confederacy. Yes, it well, thank you happen. for clearing that up. Thank you. It, and uh, if it had, uh, it had to have been the best-kept secret of the Civil War mm-hmm. because uh, uh, President Jefferson Davis uh Secretary of State J.P. Benjamin, General Robert E. Lee, General Longstreet, they certainly didn't know anything about it. Uh, They wouldn't have, if they had, they would not have enacted legislation uh, which passed, uh, narrowly passed in March of 1865, uh, allowing uh, the uh, recruitment of blacks in its army. And, of course, that... uh, 
the orders uh, issued uh, uh, implementing that legislation was issued on March the 23rd, 1865, which was 16 days before the surrender at Appomattox. Mm-hmm. And the letter from General Longstreet uh, stating that he was in the process of organizing the first black unit, that was written April the 1st, no, March the 30th, uh, 1865, about 11 days before the uh, surrender. So I just want to clear that up. In all of my research uh, over about 15-year period, I have found no evidence, absolutely no evidence, where there were any black soldiers uh, in the uh, Confederate Army. Now, the, there uh, is a question coming out, and uh, they want to know, have you conducted any research on the soldiers who served in the 3rd Indian Home Guard Regiment? Uh, yes, there were there were three. Uh, I haven't done any research uh, in particular, no, uh, you know, as far as that particular regiment, but there were. Uh, three regiments, uh, I think it was three or four regiments of Indian Home Guards. I'm familiar with them, but I haven't gone into any uh, any research on that mm-hmm. on that particular on that particular unit. And uh, one other thing I want to mention too: over the years, I've been in contact with uh, a lot of individuals and uh, and collaboration with uh, people. And one. Uh, one of the things that uh, there are two things that uh, needs needs to be researched and it needs to be uh, brought out is the fact that uh, uh, the possibility of black serving in white units. Uh, I've been t- I was told a few years ago that there were some units out of Illinois and uh, Wisconsin who had uh, who had black serving as soldiers. They were actually mustered in as soldiers in those units. Uh, back in 1996, uh, I was out at uh, reenactment at the Battle of uh, Honey Springs. I had a long talk with the historian of the 9th Kansas Cavalry, and he told me that uh, that unit was made up of blacks, whites, and Indians. And I found that to be very interesting. And he said most of the scouts were Indian. And uh, the unit was made up of farmers, and uh, mostly farmers there in Kansas. And uh, I, but I've never had a chance uh, to really do any research on any of this. I do know that uh, uh, there in Washington County, Ohio, there was uh, research done on some blacks who uh, apparently joined some of the units in uh, in that area, and they. Uh, went, uh, I don't know if they passed or not, I'm not exactly sure, but some of them ended up in the USCT after they left that particular area. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and I find, uh, I think that's, uh, uh, it's, it's, that's so much fascinating history in all aspects of the Civil War when it comes to, uh, you know, uh, people participating. Uh, and a lot of those areas have never has never been researched. One area that I I feel is uh, is that uh, it, it needs to go into that we need to go into is the uh, the uh, effect that the intelligence reports had on the outcome of the Civil War. I'm talking about from uh, from the contrabands who escaped 
mm-hmm. and brought with them intelligence reports, and that's exactly what those three guys did with Butler in uh, in Virginia. He uh, they came and they told him what they were doing, and of course he 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 said, "Well, heck, uh, you know, you guys are." Uh, uh, working and doing things in support of our enemy, you know, and I'm not going to let you go back in slavery, you know. I'll give you a job here. And that, that uh, happened uh, after the uh, policy began to get squared away and other slaves uh, began to escape into Union Army uh, areas uh, throughout the war. And this happened all the way from Virginia to, to Mississippi and Louisiana. They brought with them uh, intelligence reports uh, about the number of uh, the enemy and the movements and uh, the direction of what their plans were. In one case, there were some uh, ex-slaves who were servants at an officer's uh, unit uh, in, uh, I, think, I believe it was in Virginia, and they would overhear those officers uh, uh, talk about their battle plans and their, and so forth, their strategy, and they remembered what they everything they said, and they escaped and went to a Union Army officer and told them everything that uh, those Confederates were saying. So we had we they, a lot of that, and and of course the Union Army, they planned their strategy based on uh, on what uh, what those uh, you know contraband told them in most cases. And, of course, some of them had a habit of calling them uh, intelligent contrabands. Uh, (laughs) They didn't believe believe some of the information that uh, was being given, uh, you know, to them. And uh, and down in uh, Mississippi, uh, uh, we need to talk about the the scouts and the spies and uh, and the guides and so forth, especially in the South, because... uh, the Union Army utilized the services of a lot of those, uh, a lot of those individuals, because uh, they knew where the roads were, the rivers, the plantations, and so forth. So we we need to bring to light, you know, their role. Uh, there's so much out there that needs to be brought out, uh, and people need to be aware of it. Just wasn't. Uh, uh, you know the soldiers, uh, and uh, and of course, uh, very little is mentioned about the sailors, and they played a, a great role, uh, you know, in the in the Union Army uh, during that uh, during the Civil War. That's right. Well, we're going to now take another little break and then come right back to wrap up the show so that we can talk a little about the Freedmen's Bureau and the uh, the Thirteenth Amendment. Quick break.
National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you have been listening to Mr. Benny J. McRae Jr. Give us an excellent chronology of blacks in the Civil War. And so we're down to our last 20 minutes, and Mr. McRae, you're on. I wanted to uh, mention uh, about uh, some things that happened uh, uh, later on in uh, in 1865. Uh, in January, on January the 17th, the Missouri State Constitution uh, Convention abolishes uh, slavery. <clears throat> this is a very inter- interesting aspect that I think that uh, a lot of people should be aware of. Uh, and uh, it's uh, sort of a shameful incident, and it had to do with the incident at Ebenezer Creek in Georgia uh, in, uh, during Sherman's march to the sea. Uh, and, of course, what happened afterwards, and, well, really nothing happened as far as uh, any kind of action against those responsible. Uh, the... Uh, uh, in Sherman's march to the sea, he had there were thousands, hundreds of uh, uh, ex-slaves following him, following those units, and uh, the young, uh, the younger men were given jobs as pioneer in this pioneer corps, and of course they cleaned the uh, trails and so forth for his army to move across. The women and children and old men were behind. The, uh, the particular unit, and they had the uh, Sherman's 14th Army Corps, commanded by General Jefferson D. C. Davis, which is uh, kind of a strange name. He was a Union Army officer. Uh, when they crossed the Ebenezer Creek, uh, they uh, pulled up the pontoon bridges and uh, refused to allow those uh, people to cross, and a lot of them were were murdered, a lot of them drowned, and it caused a big uproar in Washington where it got back, and there were some witnesses, some officers that witnessed the entire incident. And uh, after Sherman got to Savannah, Georgia, uh, Secretary uh, Stanton came down and had a meeting with him, and of course he made all kinds of excuses. And uh, well, it was very interesting. On the 12th of January in 1865, uh, he wrote a scathing letter to uh, General Halleck, uh, and he used some really bad language against blacks, very negative. And, uh, and uh, that same night, he met with 20 black ministers in Savannah, and uh, they, the tone was a little bit different. So I, I just wanted to bring that up to uh, to uh, kind of bring to the surface uh, incidents of suffering by the uh, uh, by black people uh, even almost to the end of the war. It was uh, and they suffered not only under the, by the Confederates but also in incidents like this. Uh, you know these uh, particular uh, genres. Uh, uh, and, their, and some of their men, uh, the way they, they were treated, uh, 
And I think that's something that we should uh, uh, re- continue to remember. And in in that case, uh, there was no one reprimanded. Uh, the uh, commander of the left wing of uh, that Sherman's army, in which the 14th Corps was a part of, was General O.O. O. Howard. He was the uh, uh, he later became. Uh, uh, head of the Freedmen's Bureau, and of course Howard University is named after him. And they all got eventually got promoted. Even Wheeler, the Confederate, uh, the <clears throat> commander of that Confederate cavalry that was following that uh, captured a lot of those slaves and put them back into slavery. Now we're talking about right near the end of the war, and so that show you right there the disregard they had for Mr. Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was one report that they a lot of the men, a lot of those children, women and children were murdered uh, by uh, you know the uh, Confederate cavalry. But I think that's uh, one one thing that we should uh, when in remembering uh, the suffering that took place, and there was a lot of it. Uh, uh, throughout the war and uh, all over the place, and I think this was probably one of the worst, in in my opinion. So mm-hmm. I just think that uh, people would be interested in that. And those, or what the documents are online. Uh, that incident at Ebenezer Creek is on the HistoryNet.com, and I would encourage everyone to read that. It's pretty chilling, you know, to read that report and also uh, Sherman's letter. And in uh, the uh, the report of the meeting with the ministers, the 20 ministers, it has a list of names of all the ministers and where they were born and the ones that were born in slave in slavery and their slave owner and so forth. So that's something that may be beneficial to you know genealogical researchers. Yes, it would. Yes, most definitely. So we're at the point right now where we're at the Freedman Bureau has been created? Uh, yes. Uh, one, of, one of the things I have to admit, I haven't done that much uh, research on the Freedman's Bureau, but uh, it, was, uh, it was established to assist uh, those, uh, uh, you know, post-war uh, uh, problems that existed amongst the, uh, uh, you know, the uh, the people, and uh, they had uh, offices in different locations, uh, and of course uh, there were charges of corruption and all kinds of things. It wasn't uh, charges that uh, it wasn't that effective, but one of the things they did have records that uh, people can understand, people can research. I haven't gone too deeply into the uh, Freedmen's Bureau, but it was uh, a way to, uh, it was a organ- uh, system set up whereby uh, people could be assisted in, uh, you know, uh, in, in their economic conditions and so forth. Right, and, uh, well, almost a year ago we had Selma Stewart on, and she did discuss the Freedmen Bureau records. And so for those who are just searching to determine what happened to their ancestors after the, the American Civil War, certainly those are records that every individual should at least 
attempt to go through, look for labor contracts and look at some of the complaints because there were thousands of complaints that the uh, former slaves uh, wrote and went to complain about what was going on, what was happening to them, and it was a lot of cruelty. And so it's I would hope that you all would take an opportunity to go back and listen to that show. So we're coming close to the 13th Amendment. Yeah, the, the uh, 13th Amendment was uh, <clears throat> ratified on December the uh, 18th. Uh, now it was ratified by the states on December the 6th, 1865, and uh, it declared that neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. And uh, it was formally abolishing slavery in the United States. Uh, the uh, 13th Amendment was uh, passed by the Congress of the, of, uh, on January the 31st, 1865, and ratified uh, by the states uh, on December the 6th, uh, 1865. So we have had a wonderful opportunity to listen to this chronology. And it's a chronology of which you have at least set the tone for anyone who has not really studied the whole chronology of the Civil War, of slavery, where we are today. This is this is your opportunity now to go back, listen to the show, and then to look to really study this. Go and study some of the resources that are out there. And this is not Hollywood, right, Mr. McRae? That's correct. This, this is, is not Hollywood. This is not Hollywood. This is the real deal. And so. But I have a. Do I, do I have a minute to give you some stats on uh, the You units, have a minute to give us the stats, yes, sir. Okay. Let me uh, give you some information on where these units came from. There are a lot, a lot of misconceptions. Most people think that the Civil War was fought by soldiers. From, the vast majority of men in the Civil War came from the North, and that's, that's not true at all. Uh, the uh, succeeded states... Uh, uh, the states that succeeded from the Union, they uh, the total from those states was 93,346. That was 52% of the so of, of the men came from the the uh, slave states, uh, the the ones that succeeded. By the way, would you repeat that, please? The uh, total was 93,346. 52.1% came from the states that succeeded from the Union. Okay. And uh, the border states uh, produced 41,915. Those were, that was 23.4%. That was Delaware, Kentucky, Maryland, Virginia, and, of course, West Virginia, after they succeeded from Virginia. The uh, northern states... uh, uh, the total was 34,454, which was 90, uh, 92%. 
the uh, enlistments from District of Columbia, Colorado Territory, and unknown was 9,265.1%. And uh, those unknowns, I might add, there were uh, uh, a lot of uh, men who came to this country, from some from Africa, some from the Caribbean, and some from Canada. There's been a study on some of the men who came out of Canada. These were not Americans. These were Canadian-born citizens that the uh, research uh, historian uh, called Afro-British North Americans. They came and fought and served in the uh, United States colored, colored troops. And uh, the, uh, the border states, the succeeded in border states produced 135,261, which is 75.5% of the total. So as you can see, the vast majority of, uh, of the, uh, the uh, soldiers that fought in the Civil War came from the, uh, came from the, state, uh, from the slave states. Mississippi, Louisiana, Kentucky, and Tennessee, uh, just those four states produced 85,757, 47.9%. And three states, Mississippi, Louisiana, and Tennessee, uh, produced uh, 62,054, uh, 34.7%. Uh, so I just want to throw that data out uh so people get an understanding about where those men came from. Right, and there's a I question had... coming out wanting to know, did any come from Central America? Uh, y yes. Well, I, I know as one, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I ran across, I'm sure there were. Uh, I, I want to mention this. Uh, I ran across, and I got this information from the National Archives, this is very interesting. There was a gentleman named Christopher Copenhagen. Uh, he's listed on the roster of the 5th U.S. Colored Heavy Artillery. And uh, he uh, he was born in Matamoros, Mexico. And his occupation was a boatman. And he enlisted in uh, Ripley, Ohio. And uh, he went back to uh, Louisiana to serve in that regiment. And uh, I'm sure that there are others. Uh, if you, you know, if, well, once you do research on that data, I mean, on, on those records, those descriptive roads, you're going to find many other that will, many others that were probably born, you know, in, in foreign countries. I haven't run across any specific data on anyone out of Central America, but I'm sure there were, you know, uh, uh, quite a few. Uh, that came, you know, and served from from that particular part part of the country. I mean, part of the world. Right. Well, for those who want to really study, I mean, go beyond listening to the show, and they want to study more on this whole issue of blacks in the Civil War. What references would you uh, suggest that they read? Uh, there, well, there are a number of uh, of books. I, I don't know. I don't have a, a well. Uh, trying to think. There's a list of uh, Civil War books on my website. Okay, and, so we can go. Uh, they can go to yeah. your website. Yeah, and you you can uh, you just look at the Civil War books. There are a, a list of um, some very good uh, 
documents on there. Uh, one of the things that I would uh, uh, suggest, if you can, uh, you know, if you'd like to, uh, the uh, uh, official records of the Water Rebellion, you can get access to them from Cornell University online at Cornell University, and also the official records of the uh, uh, Union and uh, Confederate Navy. There's another volume that uh, the uh, official records, that uh, Army uh, volume is about 130 30 sets in, uh, in that, uh, I mean, uh, not the volume, but it's a 130 set uh, document, and uh, and there are some supplements. Uh, and most large libraries should have a copy of that. I would uh, highly recommend that uh, that uh, individuals, uh, would, if they have time to go through and look through the indexes, and you'll find some great documents in there. And these were... These are, are copies of original documents that uh, 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 they were published in 1890, uh, transcribed and uh, published in, eight, in 1890. Also, there's uh, for data there's Fox's uh, regiments, uh, uh, Fox's regiment losses, I think it is, and also Dyer's compendium, especially mm-hmm. at volume three. There's a lot of information in there on uh, on uh, soldiers of the Civil War. Uh, as far as uh, genealogical research, I can't put my finger on any particular document. I think uh, uh, I've alienated some people, and I may alienate some more tonight by stating that uh, I can't see how in the world uh, uh, Jeannie, uh, people can research in their, their family history can be successful without knowing the history of the Civil War. It's very, I, I don't see how it can be done if they don't have any knowledge of what happened and the movement of people and and especially the, uh, the civilians uh, and uh, the units and the men who served. And of course, unfortunately, uh, you there there aren't any records of the uh, contrabands or the civilians, unless you happen to run across some uh, entries in a diary of of an officer or someone. Whereas the Army and Navy, uh, there are a lot of records as you as everyone know. You know the service records, uh, the uh, uh, pension records if there's application. Uh, had been filed, and also uh, in the National Archives you have the descriptive rows. I'm not sure that uh, maybe you can tell whether or not those rows have been uh, digitized yet. Uh, last time I was there a few years ago, they were still in the original binders. So uh, those are some very valuable documents uh, that uh, that I would recommend uh, people to uh, to try and research, uh, you know, their family history. I read once where, and I don't remember the the document where there were uh, five million people of African descent who had a relative. Uh, uh, five million uh, people of African descent descent at that time who had a relative uh, uh, ancestor that served in the. Uh, Union Army or the Union Navy, and uh, and of course there were millions more that probably had one 
a relative that served as a civilian in support of the Union Army. And, of course, uh, the same on the other side, on the Confederate side. But, unfortunately, there are no records uh, of them. But uh, I think that uh, we just need to uh, stay with uh, get a good genealogist. And there are a lot of them out there. Right. That and give you some valuable information on that. You know? Absolutely. And those who have ancestors who were in the Civil War, if they applied for a pension, they have an opportunity to order those records and to really get a good, very good idea of what what battles their ancestors played, what role they played, and where they came from. So there is, you know, primary information out there for individuals. Well, we're going to wrap up the show tonight, and I just, I just have to say thank you so very much. You have really provided us with just a wealth of information. I mean, you've made a good statement. How can you study your family from a genealogical perspective and not understand the Civil War and the role that they played in the Civil War? Well, I want to just look at what's scheduled for next week. For those of you who don't know what a genes teacher is, guess what? Next week, the title of the show is To Do the Next Needed Thing, Genes Teachers and the Struggle for Freedom. My guest will be Dr. Belinda Littlefield, and she is the Director of the African American Studies and Associate Professor of History, College of Arts and Sciences from the University of South Carolina. And she's going to explore the history of the role of the genes teachers and the role that they played in the education of African American children in rural America. So good night, and thank you, Mr. McRae. And I want everyone to remember, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, Civil War history, and research at the National Archives and beyond. So let's keep this conversation going on Facebook and the Genealogy and History Forum of AfroGenius.com. Also, remember to listen to the African Roots Podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday morning and Nurturing Our Roots with Antoinette Harrell on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Thank you for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and all of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast. Good night, everyone, and I look forward to you joining me next Thursday. Good night, Benny. Good night, and thank you. Thank you so very much. Good night.
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts.